I'm gonna live till I die I'm gonna laugh instead of cry I'm gonna take the town and turn it upside down I'm gonna live, live, live until I die They're gonna say, what a guy I'm gonna play for the sky Ain't gonna miss a thing, I'm gonna have my fling Hello and welcome back to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill episode number 57 Where we go back Back to the the past. past And read a comic book from the yesteryear of publishing You can find us every Sunday on chrisandreggie.podbean.com and pick us up on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and through a biochemical process that will turn you into a terminal super-powered soldier. Did somebody say terminal? This week we're reading Strike Force Moratory. (laughs) Number one, December 1986, cover date written by Peter B. Gillis, pencils by Brent Anderson and Wilsa Portacio, inks by Scott Williams, lettered by Jim Novak and Janice Chang, colored by Max Scheel, Edited and presided over by Carl Potts <laughs> and Jim Shooter. I really, I really like to think of Jim Shooter in judges' robes. Yes, just standing over, it's, looming, it's just looming over everybody. <laughs> and he's like eight feet tall, so tapping. it works. He is a very tall guy. Yeah. Uh, cover price was seventy-five cents USD, ninety-five cents Canadian. Certainly, certainly. Peter B. Gillis, the writer, let's discuss him. He was born December 19th, 1952 in White Plains, New York. He began his comics career as a freelance writer for Marvel Comics. Uh, His first published comic story was Saturday Night Fuhrer in Captain America number 224 that was cover dated August 1978 with pencils by Mike Zeck. Uh, Peter wrote various issues of Marvel 2-in-1, What If, dot, 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 question mark, and Supervillain Team-Up from uh, 1978 through 1980. Uh, Then he worked as an editor for the Florida-based publisher New Media Publishing. Uh, He would stay there until 1981, June of 1981. Mm -hmm. Uh, In 1983, Gillis started and continued to contribute to first comic series Warp, which is uh, based on a science fiction stage play with the same title, uh, but sometimes there's an exclamation point at the end, so it's Warp! Yeah, usually the theatrical has the exclamation point, but not always, so... Not always. Whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Now, uh, Peter wrote a four-issue Black Panther miniseries with Dennis Cowan on art in 1984, uh, which is considered by some to be a landmark run on the character. And that was enough to get him... uh, uh... Other jobs, obviously. With artist Mike Sands, Peter created Shatter in 1985. This is also for First Comics. This is the first all-digital comic where all the art was created on the computer and not scanned or photographed after the fact, which is how they did it. And I'll tell you, it looks like the first comic where all the art was it created does. on the computer. I'll say that for <laughs> not, not a horrible comic, but you definitely got to remember the year it came out. But before that, and probably right coming out of Black Panther... Uh, Peter began writing his first ongoing at Marvel, which was The Defenders. About this project, Gillis said, I had, been looking, I had been working for a while at Marvel and was constantly pumping for more work, and specifically a series of my own. So when I heard Demetrius was leaving Defenders, I was in editor Carl Potts' office like a shot, and I got the gig. He wrote entire runs of Micronauts, The New Voyages, from 1984-1986, and Strange, Tale volume t- Strange Tales, Volume 2, 1984-1988, but before we get too far ahead of ourselves, let's jump into Strike Force Moratory. Yes, we'll hop across the table to Brent Anderson, the artist. Uh, born June 15, 1955, in San Jose, California. While in junior high school, Brent discovered Marvel Comics. The first Marvel comic that Brent read was Fantastic Four number 69. That was December 19, I'm sorry, 1967, by Ben Betrayed, written by Stan Lee, art 
Jack Kirby. Mm -hmm. Uh, Of this comic, Brent said, they were a family who had superpowers and helped each other out. I wanted to be part of a family like that. Uh, Anderson began writing and drawing his own comics on school school binder paper, like so many of us did. Uh, creating a pantheon of his own that included Radium the Robot and The Chameleon, but not that chameleon. Oh, I would assume not, yeah. <laughs> now, after doing fanzine illustrations, Anderson's first professional comics work appeared in the mid-70s in underground publications such as All Slug, Tesseray, and the and Venture. Uh, in 1981, Kazar the Savage, written by Bruce Jones, became Anderson's first regular series. Uh, the X-Men God Loves Man Kills graphic novel would follow. That was written by Chris Claremont. Uh, during this period, Anderson was uh, active doing artwork for independent publishers uh, Pacific Comics and Eclipse Comics, including the innovative cinematic comic Somerset Holmes. Have you ever read that? No, I, I've seen I pages either. of it, but yeah. I have never read it myself. Now, uh, Brent contributed artwork to a number of Marvel comics, including the heroic space opera, Strike Force Moritori. Yeah, space opera, sure, why not? Mm-hmm. Uh, and let's talk about Wilson Portacio. He contributes a few pages in this issue, and we will explain what those pages are when we get down to breaking it down. But just to give him his due here, William Wilson Portacio was born July 8, 1963, in Sangley Point, Cavite City, Philippines. Wilson grew up with in places such as Midway Island and New Mexico before his family settled in San Diego, California. At the age of 10, he discovered the work of creators such as Jack Kirby and Neil Adams, who were the two most important influences on Portacio's art. I would have to assume this was probably like 67, 66. Mm. Uh, Though Portacio dreamed of becoming an astronaut, his height and eyesight did not meet the necessary requirements, so he did try. Uh, Wow. And so he determined that art would be his vocation. Uh, Portacio attended his first comic book convention in San Diego, where Marvel Comics editor Carl Potts, after seeing Portacio's portfolio, offered him the job inking over Frank Sirocco and Chris Warner's pencils on the 1984 series Alien Legion. The following year, he inked over Art Adams' pencils on the 1985 miniseries Longshot. Portacio was then given penciling jobs and became noted for his work on such titles as The Punisher, X-Factor, and The Uncanny X-Men, for the latter of which he co-created the character Bishop with John Byrne and Jim Lee. And, uh, of course, he was one of the founding members of Image Comics, but uh, he would have to withdraw almost immediately. He was still part of them, but he wasn't able to contribute his story because his sister became uh, gravely ill. Yeah, later Um, he did a ton of work with them, but... Oh, yeah, yeah, because his wet works was... uh, was the one that uh, that was supposed to be his contribution to the uh, launch and right. uh, didn't happen for a very long time. Became uh, sadly, it became a running joke, even despite the reasons. The why. reason, but anyway. Uh, now, uh, speaking of uh, becoming ill, in August 2000, Potassio fell into a diabetic coma as a result of a failing pancreas. He woke up a week later, wow. 30 pounds lighter, and unable to walk, stand, or even draw. Uh, only six months later, he was able to pick up a pencil and draw again. Of this, he wrote on his blog, "My mind couldn't see what I wanted to draw, but my hand couldn't. My mind could see what I wanted to draw, but my hand couldn't accomplish it." Wow. Uh, yeah. On June 9th, 2008, it was announced that Potassio would be the new artist on Spawn, starting on October with uh, October 2008's issue uh, 185. 
providing pencils with Spawn creator Todd McFarlane, returning as co-writer with uh, Brian Holguin as the uh, new creative team going forward. Uh, fast forward to now, he's a regular, regularly working artist, providing variant covers for DC and some interior art for Marvel. Yeah, he seems to mostly do covers, but I think that is by choice at this point in his life. Uh, yeah, he's he, he's uh, one of the uh, statesmen now. So yeah, he can he can call a little bit of the shots now. Uh, you might be wondering what the heck is a moratory. Yeah. Right? We know what a strike force is. We don't know what a moratory so. is. Well, moratory, uh, first place it showed up is in the phrase Awe Imperator, moratori te salutant, meaning Hail Emperor, those who are about to die salute you. It's from a work titled Divita Caesarum, The Life of Caesars, or The Twelve Caesars, written by Gaius Suetonius Tranquilius. This is a Roman historian under the reign of Emperor Hadrian around 121 AD. So this is what kicked off the, the, the phrase, we who are about to die, really originates from this work right here. Uh, it was reportedly used during an event in AD 52 on Lake Fucinus, by, or Fucinus, by captives and criminals fated to die during the mock naval encounters in the presence of the Emperor Claudius. According to Suetonius, Suetonius Claudius's reply was, out none or not. Uh, despite its popularization in later times, the phrase is not recorded elsewhere in Roman history. Uh, it's often been ascribed to gladiators, and apparently yeah. they, they did not say it. It was these nope. guys fighting here. Uh, many historians believe it was not a traditional salute, but an appeal to the emperor by condemned criminals. They were like, uh, we're going <laughs> to die here for you, buddy. Uh, the phrase then uh, also appears in George Bernard Shaw's. This is probably with the modern popularization of the phrase here. George yeah. Bernard Shaw's 1912 play Androcles and the Lion immediately before the Christians face the lions as Hail Caesar, those about to die salute thee. Yes, and uh, John LaRue, member of the Royal Australian Air Force during World War II, liked to call headquarters with the, pra- with the phrase, Moritori vos saludamos, we who are about to die salute you. Uh, his 2007 biography, written by Lex McCauley, is titled, We Who Are About to Die. Uh, Moritori is the title of a 1965 film about World War II, starring uh, Marlon Brando and Yul Brenner. Uh, it also appears in many works of literature. A uh, partial list is uh, Heart of Darkness, a novel by Joseph Conrad in 1902, uh, James Joyce's Ulysses from uh, to- 1922, and Agatha Christie's The Secret Adversary from 1922. In the uh, 1985 sci-fi comedy motion picture My Science Project, the, the two protagonists, Vincent Sherman, encounter a gladiatorial sentry. They are greeted with the customary phrase, which is incorrectly translated by Sherman as He's going to kick our ass. Yeah, that's not quite what it means. But I, I would guess yeah. that John LaRue is the one that brought this we who are about to die salute you into, into the, the present. Yeah, into the present. Into the modern. But it's, and it's it, what? Oh, I was going to say it's also the first story arc of uh, Keith Giffen's Doom Patrol is called that. Oh, that's right. I, that's right. I yeah, think about from that. From 2010, they, 2009, yeah. Uh, also, you know, uh, those about to rock, we salute you. Wasn't that an ACDC yes. thing? They kind of took a <laughs> I think so, that. yes. And I think this is also ascribed often to Marines, but it's funny that initially this was not a warrior's cry. This was nope. uh, the cry of the an condemned. Appeal. Yeah, an appeal. So it's uh, kind of an interesting origin. But anyway. Let's head right into the comic, Strike Force Moratory, number one, December 1986, cover date, uh, titled, so, Though Some Have Named Thee So. The story opens in New Roanoke, Virginia, or what's left of it looks pretty messed up. We learn that the alien hordes have been through the area, leaving it ravaged, pillaged, looted, and burned. It's here that we meet Harold C. Everson, nickname Rabid Beaver. 
Okay. Uh, one of the Paidea emergency volunteers. Upon return, he's greeted by some pals. Yeah, one pal named JT goes, Everybody, it's all B's last day before he turns Moritori, right? This calls for something. For the Paideans, to being accepted to undergo the Moritori process is akin to winning a lottery. But not everybody is so pleased. Enter Harold's folks. Yes, the Evisons pick up their son at the Alexandria, Virginia train station or tram station, whatever it is in this far-flung future, <laughs> and they uh, take him home uh, with hopes of talking their boy into becoming a writer because he does have a talent for writing and mm-hmm. out of becoming a, quote, dead man. Mm-hmm. Uh, the conversation goes about as well as you could expect, uh, sort of college freshman home for Thanksgiving minus the, uh, you know, the political arguments. Yeah, this is uh, similar to, like, the Starship Troopers thing where it's, they don't want him to join the army either But uh, he says uh, Dad says Harold There are other ways of fighting the aliens and This way is mine A real way Not just hauling bodies So you're throwing everything away For a chance to grab some glory I don't understand that Hal If you think that's why I'm doing it Then you don't understand me dad Not at all he stomps away from the family table and heads to his bedroom to rip posters off the wall and read his last stand, the last stand of the Black Watch comic book. From here, our book shifts in both narrative and art style to signify that we're reading Hal's comic. That's very meta, man. Yeah. And this is where uh, Wilsa Protasio comes in. He draws the pages for the last stand of the Black Watch comic. Uh, this is part two of the last stand of the Black Watch written by Nicholas Burbaki. Which, if the internet is to believe, is a collective pseudonym used by a group of 20th century French mathematicians. Yes, the artist is listed as Yurusu Barento. And uh, Yurusu is a romanization for the Japanese word for virus. Uh, Barento might be an Anglo- anglicization for Brent. I don't know if there's any significance to so it. So the Brent, Unless it's the Brent, Brent virus? I don't know. <laughs> because, well, I mean, the artist of the main book is Brent Anderson. I don't know if it's... I don't know. Maybe yeah. Anderson is a type of virus. Could be. <laughs> the editor's a lot easier. It's just in time. <laughs> get it? Hey, I get it. Don't, yeah. don't call me just in time for dinner. Uh, <laughs> the Black Watch story begins by introducing us to three moratory-enhanced heroes fighting off the alien horde. They're also the trio on the cover of our actual Strike Force Moratory number one comic book, so we're familiar yes. with them, sort of. Names are Clint, Bruce, and Woody, and they fight off a horde of aliens. Yes, uh, we rejoin the main narrative with Harold arriving at the green and peaceful New Haven Moratory Campus, which uh, he mentions looks looks as peaceful as a cemetery, uh, which is, you know, foreboding. Yeah. Uh, inside, we meet his commander, who is uh, Beth Louise Neon, uh, Neon, maybe. Okay. Uh, also, <laughs> also, Dr. Kimo Tulema, and he's the inventor of the Moratory process. We also meet his teammates, a Robert Greenbaum. Who looks alarmingly like Joe Piscopo, if anyone <laughs> yes. remembers who that guy is. Uh, and I think he might be supposed to look like that. Uh, I think so. There's also Jaylene Anderson, a fellow named Louis Arminetti. Who looks a lot like Freddie Mercury. Uh, shockingly so, yes. <laughs> we have uh, Lorna Rathburn and Aileen Pegrovna, who nearly crushes Harold's hand with her handshake. Now, she had just undergone the first stage of the moratory process, which grants her body an enhanced metabolism and strength to ensure that her body can handle the, quote, full effect of the moratory process, and uh, which will grant her whichever 
superpower the process will grant her. Basically. Yeah, it's like it's like a random. You know, you're gonna develop some superpower. They don't some know what it is, but the fact is, you got you have to like take a pre-dose to make sure you can yeah. take the full dose. <laughs> uh, yeah. So Harold sold his nothing on his agenda today and decides to retire to his quarters and picks up with his Black Watch comic again. In it, the three heroes face off with the leader of the Horde, and after warning them that even if they should fall, there will be subsequent waves of Earthen heroes to fight the aliens off. Then they die valiantly. Hal's mm-hmm. reading sessions interrupted by Lorna, who tells him that the Black Watch story might not be completely historically accurate. Hal's confused, but she tells him he'll find out what she means soon enough. Now that night, uh, his and everybody's really <laughs> slumber is interrupted by a high-pitched scream. That we're not going to voice over. No, no, no. Uh, now the scream is coming from Aileen's room, uh, and she's screaming that she doesn't want to die and needs to be calmed down by Dr. Tulema. Uh, the following morning, Harold meets with Commander Neon for an interview. Yeah, Commander Neon says, I read your application, Harold. You write very eloquently, but I've got to ask you again personally. Why do you want to die? Well, uh, because it's important. This, the, the moratory process may be the way to driving the aliens off to Earth. That's not the question I asked, boy. What I asked was, why do you want to die? I think it's just because I don't want to just live. I want to use my life the best way it could be used, and that's in defense of the planet. Uh, that doesn't really answer the question, does it, Chris? It's uh... No. Sort of the same thing, just said differently, kind of flowered up a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I guess that's what all you need to do. He, just the same way I graduated college, he answered that question. So uh, <laughs> Neon tries to instill in him just how final the decision he's about to make is. If he undergoes the moratory process, he'll be dead within a year. Harold tells her what he plans to do is write about his experience, which in a way will make him immortal. But in another way... Won't stop him from dying at all. He'll still be quite dead. Yeah. Uh, now we we shift to midday, where Commander Neon brings Harold out to speak with Doctor Dilemma, you know, one on one. He's currently in the middle of a, the the more boring part of imbuing the military process on old Freddie Mercury. There, uh, he takes Harold into a monitor-filled room to show him the actual final moments of the members of the Black Watch. If you remember, Lorna said that uh, the comic adaptation was mm. not was might not be legitimate. Right. Uh, now in the video, we join Bruce and Woody, who are lamenting the loss of their third member, Clint. And it's still weird seeing the word Clint in comic books. Mm-hmm. Um, now, it's <laughs> they're also celebrating that they were able to take out the Horde commander. This celebration is cut short, however, as Woody's body begins to shake. Then his face comes apart in a horrifying mess of melted flesh and smoking bone. A shocked Harold stands silently and perhaps instinctively begins to stroke his own face. You see, what happened there is poor Woody succumbed to the moratory effect. The moratorium metabolism is incompatible with that of a human and will ultimately be rejected in a gross and fatal way. Nobody knows when the rejection will occur, but it's been known for sure that within a year, anyone who undergrows the process will be dead. Mm-hmm. We jump to lunch where Harold's joined by Aileen. She knows he just saw the video. He asks why she signed on, and she talks about how she decided to trade her nothing-going-on life of office work and acne for one year of glory. And she goes, Life was nothing for me before. The only reason I didn't commit suicide is that no one would have noticed. Oh, suddenly an alarm sounds. Yeah, and the campus personnel (laughs) begins to scramble. 
Commander Neon commands Harold and the rest to go down below, citing how important it is to keep this facility a secret from the Horde. Harold puts up a bit of resistance, but gets shouted down by the boss lady. In the bunker... Harold goes, We shouldn't be cowering in a hole while others fight for us. I didn't come here to be a coward. They tap into the military radio and hear their commander is fighting in the thick of it. Harold again suggests they join the fight, and his teammates agree. Yeah. Aileen attempts to use her super strength to pull the bunker door off her hinges, but can't. Suddenly, though, a burst of energy comes from her hands and melts the door. It would appear that she has reached her full moratory potential. And so the cadets run to a hangar to board a flyer. Luckily, Joe Piscopo is training in a, as a pilot. <laughs> wow, that's good. Very <laughs> yes. convenient. Uh, mm-hmm. The team blasts off once they find themselves above the action. Aileen jumps out without a parachute. <laughs> Harold goes, Aileen, stop. We're too high. Don't worry about me, Harold. See you below. <laughs> the flyer lands in the not yet strike force. Takes the flight to the alien. Takes the fight to the alien horde with laser pistols. Well, aliens got her powers, but the rest have to resort to traditional firearms of the period. Sure. Now, Commander Neon notices that the kids somehow got out of their pen and shouts at them to return to base. Everson, what in blazes are your kids doing? Get back to base. That's an order. Now, taking her eye off the enemy, Neon gets nailed with a shot to the back. A medic runs up to attend to the commander, and Harold presses forward. Despite the objections of the injured Neon, and presumably everybody else, this is really a dumb idea here. It is. Uh, we get a, we get a, a, you know, a, a thought caption from Harold here. He goes, uh, and so here you are, playing hero, and your adrenaline believes that you live forever. A convenient belief, isn't it? How could wars be fought otherwise? After all, Hemingway survived the Spanish Civil War, didn't he? Heroes never die before their proper time, do they? Isn't that right, Mr. Hero? Mr. Immortal? Mm, we don't want to bury the lead here, but no. Nope. Yeah, it doesn't work out that way, buddy. <laughs> uh, the Horde reboard their ship and take off with Harold getting caught in the thruster exhaust. Surprisingly, he looks none the worse for the wear. The first time I read this, I thought that was his death. It, <laughs> right it seems like it's going to be, right? But he's, <laughs> he's fine. Now back at the base, Commander Neon reads the Geeks the Riot Act. Now I know why you're so eager to take on the moratory process. You're just stupid. That depot wasn't important. The Horde got away with a warehouse full of pharmaceuticals and another full of chocolate. Chocolate! You morons are supposed to become Earth's secret weapon. You don't get yourself killed over chocolate. I don't know, I think pharmaceuticals might be a, yeah, might uh, something important. you want to keep. Yeah. Yeah. The chocolate, chocolate, too. That also keeps <laughs> certain people calm, you know what I'm talking about? That's right? true. <laughs> now, uh, we wrap up this issue with Harold returning to his quarters and once again picking up his Black Watch comic. This time he only holds it for a moment and then drops it. You know, uh, lowering the value of it as in condition. <laughs> <Definitely>, yeah. <laughs> now, he recounts everything he's learned today, and he's been a very busy boy. He gets up, puts on his robe, and head, heads to Commander Neon's office. She says, now what? I've got a report to write. And he responds with, Commander, I've decided to sign on. Which I didn't realize was in uh, dispute. I mean, I guess... I still, didn't either, yeah. I guess before the process, you could back out, but I, I pretty much thought he was all in at this point, but all right. You figure he signed all the contracts before they let him on the campus. Yeah, and you already stood in the blast of an alien spaceship, so... I, <laughs> <laughs> Feel like you had your baptism by fire, but anyway, we're going to talk. We're going to uh, pay special attention to Strike Force Moratory Two because that really does kind of flesh out the 
feel of the series, but you know, yes. this, we're not going to give a full voice script to it. Just let give you the uh, plot beats. Uh, this was just cover dated January 1987, titled The Garden. Uh, now, the Moratori team are watching Heart World, a sci-fi soap opera blending actual news video with a fictional narrative. So, sort of like reality television in the real world is exactly how what it is. Sometimes yeah. the lines are so blurred, you don't know which is the news and which is the uh, fictional. Yes. <laughs> uh, anyway, Aileen returns to the view, return. Sorry, Aileen interrupts the viewing party by showing off her new Strike Force Moratori costume which looks like probably the lamest Legion of Superheroes costume <laughs> ever. It's sort of a flared skirt and a puffy shirt, shoulder poofs, and like a V line, yeah. like I get excited. Straps, suspenders, what you call them? I don't know what it is. Yeah, she's uh, gaudy lass. It really is. It looks ridiculous. <laughs> she says the commander recommended they design individual costumes as it would be co- it would come across better on television. And that's a pretty sobering thought, yeah. you know. Uh, we, you know, we, we're looking at these kids who are infusing themselves with a death sentence just so they can fight back alien hordes, and the people in charge still see their value as, you know, being used to garner ratings and sympathy. Yeah. In a soap opera, and want each character to be identifiable at a glance. Maybe I mean, for merchandising, maybe for, for who for knows. For the comic book. I mean, they're, for the yeah, comic they're, they're book looking, that comes. Yep. They're looking at their public thing. These guys are going to become like the celebrities as well as. You know, de- definitely dead people. To definitely to dead people. Although I would say that yep. perhaps letting them design their own costumes is a mistake. That's all. I'm just going to say that. That might be the <laughs> error. It, but uh, whatever. No. The, uh, the uh, Heartworld's uh, program is interrupted by an actual news report. This comes from PNN in Osaka, Japan, where the Horde have raided and abducted a large number of hostages. And we hear that something called a high dive is in progress. And this is a pretty gruesome and effective way for the Horde to remind the Earthlings that they're not screwing around. Uh, They fly into orbit and push the human hostages out of the airlocks one by one. So you see each person burning up on re-entry and looking not unlike shooting stars to the people below. Wow. I mean, that's brutal. That would really, <laughs> that would affect me. I mean, even reading about it, and it's like yeah. totally fiction. I'm just like, yikes, that would really, you know. That sends a message. It would give you pause to think. Anyway, mm-hmm. uh, the cadets hear one of their jets power up and almost immediately power back down. Turns out Joe Piscopo couldn't take it anymore, and he was planning to head right to Osaka. Commander Neon wasn't quite feeling it, claiming to do so would be throwing his life away. Next up, we finally meet some of the aliens who have the most irritating and difficult to read lettering. It is yeah. really bad, but I love their design. Uh, yep. You know, they didn't go sleek, super scientific, you know, uh, guys in jumpsuits. These are like tribal aliens, and they've got like... Paunch, yeah. Yeah, but <laughs> first of all, yeah, they're not all like the same body build. Some of them are all kind of like flabby, and they all kind of have uh, very naughty, gnarled faces, but they're also wearing like... Uh, you know, Marvel comics buttons and you know people's bus passes and the yeah. uh, the finger bones of people and so like all these different trophies that they've gotten. I, I feel like that is probably closer to something that might happen as crazy as sure. to say in a, a, this context. But anyway, uh, back at the base, Harold and Robert work out in their tidy whities and uh, quite uncomfortable scene. Yeah. <laughs> it does. So Twolema and Neon watch them from the monitors. With the doc word, but that without the proper stimuli, their actual powers won't develop in time for them to be of much use to the strike force. And so it's decided to place them in a pressure cooker known as the Garden to force them to meet their moratory potential. It's a dangerous trick they're about to pull, and we learn that the original Black Watch, of which we saw three members, 
was originally a squad of five. All five entered the garden, but only three emerged. Mm -hmm. Now we jump to several days later as the strike force arrives at what appears to be an ordinary farm, which naturally has an elevator to take them 300 feet underground. That's an ordinary farm thing. (laughs) Yes. Now this is the garden, and the cadets are all wearing odd bodysuits with high collars. (laughs) Uncomfortable high collars, judging by how none of them will shut up about them, and they will not stop rubbing their necks either. Uh, They're told that this is a training exercise and are ordered not to help one another should danger arise. So basically, it's like a super deadly version of the X-Men's danger room with with things that can actually kill you and not just holograms. Although the original danger room also was real things. Was things, Uh, yes, before the Shi'ar. (laughs) Yeah, then they they brought in the holograms. But anyway, uh, Lorna walks past some bushes, nearly gets burnt to a crisp by hidden plasma jets. Freddie Mercury walks through tall grass and notices a sensor. After destroying it, He's overcome by a toxic gas, so, you know, you can't win for losing. Robert hears Jillian scream and finds her wrapped in snakes. He tries to help her, but he's burned by microwaves, and a cell closes around Jaylene, further, you know, separating her from Robert and everyone else. Harold follows what he believes to be Lorna's voice, but turns out to be a cockatoo bird with a speaker around its neck. (laughs) And he finds himself caught in a web of lasers. I mean, are these aliens this crafty? Anyway, uh, <laughs> he starts to think that the uncomfortable collar might be drugging them, making them hyper and crazy. He doesn't feel this is the right way to test them. Speaking of testing, we briefly join Aileen and Commander Neon, who are monitoring the entire affair. You know, Aileen doesn't need to do it since she already blossomed. Right. Uh, and uh, Neon informs Aileen that this is actually not a test. Um, Harold comes across uh, Freddie Mercury, who is paralyzed and can hardly speak. All he can muster is, he doesn't want to die. (laughs) Uh, Harold continues, his next person he finds is Lorna, and he warns that this test might be bogus and suggests that perhaps the Horde had, quote, gotten to Commander Neon. Lorna takes an amazing amount of offense to the very thought and backhands Harold, at which time her moratory powers activate. Whoa. Back at command, Aileen tries to get Neon to end the exercise, but she refuses, claiming that it's happening. Back inside, Lewis tries to fight off his paralysis. That's uh, Freddie Mercury to us. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Suddenly, his eyes begin to glow, and he feels as though his body is burning, and his moratory power activates. Harold meets up with Robert, and and they see Jolene is still covered in snakes and in a cell. They grab some debris, proceed to pound on the cell to free the teammate, at which time their moratory powers activate. So maybe this wasn't such a bad idea. Anyway, uh, <laughs> back in command, Aileen pleads with Neon to call it off, worried that Jaylene's powers will not activate the same way as the others, and this will just kill her. Inside, Harold's screaming for the test to be stopped. Neon briefly pauses as though she's having second thoughts, but ultimately decides the test must continue. At this point, Harold senses where Neon is watching from and springs all the way from the garden floor through the window into the monitoring room. It's kind of fresh. I like it. (laughs) Yes, totally. And he lands with both hands wrapped around Commander Neon's throat. Wow. (laughs) That's a hell of a name, a hell of a jump. Now, he calls her a murderer and accuses her of being in the Horde's pocket. All the while, he's positively beating the hell out of her. It's really quite a siege, just ravaging this poor lady. Uh, now, on the monitors, as he's pounding away, we can see that in the in the interim, Jaylene's moratory powers have finally activated. Not that that's going to stop Harold, because no. he's not even paying attention at this point. Uh, he reels back to deliver another punch, but this time his fist is nabbed by Joe Piscopo. <laughs> he's holding Jaylene and informs his partner that everything's cool. 
Harold begins to cry and apologizes to Neon for believing her to have turned. Neon, in return, also apologizes because had Jolene's powers not activated, she was going to allow her to die in the garden. Mm-mm. So the issue ends with Commander Neon congratulating the team on passing and they're being given the soap opera-friendly costumes and assigning themselves code names. Lorna becomes Snapdragon, has the power of plasma bursts. Lewis is Radian and can, can emit radiation. And judging from his outfit, probably really good at doing the hustle. Has nice big chunky so. cuffs for us. Uh, Alien gives Jaylene the name Adept because she has the power to decipher and counter things. Kind of hard to explain, but she can like mm. counteract poisons, toxins, and then either yeah. you know give the antidote or even spit them back or reproduce them. It's a very weird power. Uh, Robert goes by Marathon. He's suddenly like two feet taller than everybody else. He's just a big brute. And Harold takes the name Viking and the stupidest costume of all because his father is Scandinavian and his power has to do with redirecting energy. Aileen is Blackthorn, and as we saw last issue, she can cause things to melt and break apart. Yes, and that ends the first two issues of Strike Force Moritori. And, uh, you know, this series features so many twists and turns that... If we talk about any given issue, it could result in huge series-changing spoilers. Yeah. Um, now we know from uh, you know from the basic concept here that the entire cast is the very definition of expendable, and the real drama is in the how and when <laughs> that we you know we don't know how they're going to die and when they're going to die. Yeah. Um, and if we were just to go through the list, you know, and go through the hows and the whens, it would take a great deal of the oomph and a lot of the emotion out of it. So yeah, sure. we're not going to do that. Uh, we will, however, share the first couple of deaths. Um, you know, start, before we get to the actual deaths here, the following issue here, issue three, February 1987, our newly graduated Strike Force plans to have a bit of a celebration. And so they invite Dr. Tulema to attend. But he says he doesn't have the time because he's going to be busy working with their replacements. Yeah. <laughs> and that's a, a terribly sobering thought. Right. You know, when, when juxtaposed with the current team's celebration, it's yeah. really quite tragic. It kind of tempers the good feeling, you know. It's doesn't like, it? It shows you how temporary, <laughs> and these guys are just, you know, these are, are as temporary as bullets. They are just weapons to be used until they're, they're used up. Until they're uh, out, yeah. Yeah, and so, and this is, so now we'd go to the actual first death. In issue number four, March 1987 cover, features the formal announcement to the world of Strike Force Moratori and one hell of a gala event. The party's interrupted by the Horde, but the team is able to hold them off. The issue ends up with Poiline, Aileen, Poiline, Aileen <laughs> being poisoned. However, Jaylene is able to create an antidote with her saliva. As Aileen recovers, Lorna smiles, thankful they didn't lose anyone. But no sooner does she say that, when her own moratory effect sets in, there's a burning in her stomach, and she runs out from the group before exploding in a cloud of light. And the issue ends right there with, this team, with the team standing silently amid their party guests. And it yeah. really is like, Shocking, you know. It's yeah. It's uh. We'll let's we'll, we'll talk about it after you do this next issue. Yeah. Now, now that was issue four, and then right. two issues later to further illustrate how nobody is safe. <laughs> issue six, May nineteen eighty seven, features the out of nowhere death of our point of view character up to this point, Harold. I mean, that's just crazy. Yeah. Uh, he succumbs to the Moritori effect en route to the Horde in a stolen spacecraft, and his quote explosion tears a hole in the hull his teammates out into the vacuum of space. 
I mean, that's yeah. six issues in where, you know. You've the, almost the, destroyed the, the entire team. It's almost wrapped yeah. up. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this was uh, our point of view guy. It, it was. It's really interesting. You know, it's really is a clever concept and a very well written series because all these characters also. I wouldn't say that they have such a deep. It is a. It is a comic book. You know, it's not like such yeah. deep character development where you feel like they could be your uh, cousin or something like that. But all of them, they talk about their likes, their dislikes, their like quirks, why their habits, there. why they're yeah. there. There's a lot of information given about. All these characters, even Lorna, in in just a few issues, you learn a lot about her motivations, what she's like, the kind of people she likes, you know. Uh, and and it's it's very it's a weird thing because you know they're going to die, but you don't expect them to die. I, I don't know any other way to describe it because yeah, even while reading it, I keep thinking like they'll figure something out, you know, or you mm-hmm. know they'll you know a year it'll be comic book time, so it'll be like you know four years. The whole series, yeah. Uh, but no, it's happening. It happens right from the outset. You realize that it's a really common thing. The military's ready to replace you at the drop of a dime. Yeah. So it's uh, it's it's definitely a very it's an interesting concept. I would recommend. Uh, I read the first six issues, and that's what I would recommend at least that much. Uh, it's it's on the Marvel app, folks. If you want to read it for nothing, um, I, I enjoyed it. I, you know, uh, we're going to talk a little more about it, well, your personal recollections later, but. Oh, yeah, because cool. I'm also thinking here. You know, we have uh, we've got these people putting their lives on the line, and uh, the two first deaths weren't in battle. No, you know, they they succumb to the effect, so they well, die. One is after the battle, and one is yeah. on the way to the battle. Yeah, exactly. So, so they don't even get like a heroic death. They no. just fizzle out. And I mean, that, that's and I I don't want to give away everything that goes on here, but there is some very existential. Uh, you know what is heroism type of a discussion toward yeah. the end and is is this worthwhile is this something that they should have done from the the outset or is this or was this an overcorrection on on earth's part it's a it's actually it's very tragic it's uh it is uh, especially just, uh, these are also we'll kids see. too these are all young like sure i, I imagine it'd be like 19 28 you know 18 to 21 ish 22 ish rage uh matter of fact, they talk about the first team Died earlier because they were older when they got the process, right? That's one. Mm-hmm. Of the, that's yeah. one of the uh, things they talk about. That they realize they got to get younger people so they can potentially have them around a little longer. But obviously, it's such a volatile thing that people can die within like a week, like Lorna did. So yeah. <laughs> whatever that was supposed for two weeks, whatever that it was. Uh, cool, cool story. Almost like uh, I mean, not to take away from the comic book, but this would just make a good flat-out sci-fi story, I think. Just text, you know mm-hmm. what I mean, if you wanted to really round it out that way. But anyway, that doesn't, doesn't exist, so check out the comics, folks. We had a good time and, with it. And there is, there is one person that does make it past a year. Oh, yeah? That I'll tell you. Okay. Yeah. Well, well, I'm not going to uh, reveal that. I, <laughs> I may dive back into the uh, app later and, and see what I can find out. Mm-hmm. But Strike Force Moratorium would run for 31 issues from December 1986 through July 1989 and would be followed by a five-part prestige format miniseries called Electric Undertow, which ran from December 1989 through March 1990 and featured some very early Mark Bagley artwork. Mm-hmm. Look at that. Now, and I uh, think James Hudnall would take over the writing about halfway through the the first series is James I, uh, Hudnall. I know some I, I remember reading that someone took over, but by then I was like, not Gillis, whatever. Yep. <laughs> I'm on a Gillis hunt, folks. I don't care about anyone else. Uh excuse me. <clears throat> anyway. 
So let's wrap up on Peter B. Gillis. Uh, now, there's a rumor that Strikeforce Moratory was meant to be part of Editor-in-Chief Jim Shooter's New Universe titles. Started around this time where he was kind of rebooting a universe within a universe, right? Yep. Uh, Peter Gillis dispels that rumor as false. He said... I had been shopping the series around to various companies, and a number of them were interested. Since I was working with Carl Potts on Doctor Strange, I showed it to him. Carl surprised me by saying he wanted to do it. He's the one who suggested Brent Anderson draw it, which delighted me still more. Both Brent and I had to feverishly insist that this was not a new universe book. No, no, no. Please don't (laughs) associate us with it, because most of the people said the new universe with the way the people say boy band or reality show these days. Yes. Uh, now, for where this fits in, it's worth noting that in issue number seven, that's June 1987 of this series, we do get appearances from odd, mar- odd Marvel artifacts, such as Captain America's shield, Galactus's helmet, and the Silver Surfer's surfboard, perhaps setting the story in some sort of far-flung Marvel future. Hmm. Though it's also worth noting that we see Green Lantern power batteries, a giant penny, and a Dalek. So, uh, who knows? <laughs> Yeah, just whatever he felt like chucking in space at the moment. <laughs> Basically. Uh, and also a semi-recent issue of uh, X-Force, I think it was from 2014, uh, refers to Strikeforce Moratory as having occurred on Earth 1287. Sure. And I would imagine that's probably the month and year of the first issue's I, uh, release. That makes sense. Yeah, that's usually yeah. how they like to name those Earths. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now, after Strikeforce Moratory, Peter Gillis wrote several issues of The Eternals, Volume 2. 1985-1986, Doctor Strange, Volume 2, 76 through 81, that went from 86 to 87, and all of Doctor Strange, Sorcerer Supreme, Volume 1, uh, numbers 1 through 4, that was 88 to 89. In 88, Gillis wrote the 10-issue series Gamma Rotters for DC Comics, which tied into TSR's role-playing game of the same name. And then he returned to comics in 2010. I don't know what he did in the interim, <laughs> but he wrote the six-issue comic adaptation of Peter S. Beagle's The Last Unicorn for IDD, IDW Publishing, which I think did get nominated for awards. I didn't, I didn't pick him up here, so it won't see mm. him, but yeah. uh, it's a well-respected bunch of books there. Sure. Uh, now over to Brent Anderson. In uh, 1995, he co-created, along with uh, writer Kurt Busiek and cover artist Alex Ross, the award-winning Astro City series, Ziz, because there were several. Right. Um, and it's uh, currently being published by Vertigo, and that's as of uh, 2013. Yeah, I, Other... I, I didn't want to go through its publishing history since we might do an Astro City I'm comic sure one we'll day, get there. so yeah. it's, there's a lot to it, but okay. Yeah, there's, uh, there's a whole bunch, and I'm <laughs> sure we will eventually get to it. Uh, now, other works uh, by uh, Anderson included... J. Michael Straczynski's Rising Stars, Untouchable, which is a spin-off series of Rising Stars written by Fiona Avery. Uh, and this covers the life of special assassin Laurel Darkhaven. Uh, Anderson worked with writer Marv Wolfman on a one-shot entitled uh, Green Lantern Plastic Man, Weapons of Mass Deception. And that was released in December of 2010. Uh, Into the New 52, a Phantom Stranger ongoing series written by Dan DiDio and drawn by Anderson began in tw- uh, September 2012. He uh, was the recipient of the Inkpot Award in 1985, Uh, the Eisner Awards he got, and we're going to guess that all these awards that followed are probably for Astro City, Yeah. um, based on, you know, when they were given. We've got one for Best New Series in 1996, Best Single Issue for 96, 97, and 98. 
Best Continuing Series for 1997-1998, Best Serial Story for 1998, uh, Harvey Awards for the Best New Series of 1996, Best Single Issue or Story of 1996, Best Graphic Album pre- of Previously Released Work in 1997. Uh, that might, I don't know if they did a re-release of God Loves Man Kills or, right. if, that's, uh, or if that's more uh, Astro City. That would actually make more sense, I think. But who knows? Yeah. It, could, it could have been a graphic it collection been, of that. It could have been, sure. Yeah. Now, also, he uh, got the Don Thompson Award, uh, Best Achievement by Penciler in 1996, and Favorite Single Creative Team, along with Kurt Busiek, in 1998. And he does some good work, kind of a, a looser sure. style, but to my eye, but perfectly effective uh, right in the realm of classic comp. And now we're going to talk about something that Chris titled A Thousand Days and the Rights. Mm. Uh, Strike Force Moratori as a concept had been optioned by the Sci-Fi Channel in 2003 as either a film, a miniseries, or a full-blown series called The Thousand Days. It was to be a co-production between the Reveal Productions of The Office fame and Marvel Studios. Not much came from it besides maybe a Wizard Magazine article or two for reasons we're about to go into. In June 2011, Waterman Entertainment optioned the series for a film, which was set to start production in late 2011. And so, in July of 2011, Marvel Comics began registering Moritori trademarks like they were going out of style. Mm. Uh, January 2012 saw the reissue of Strike Force Moritori number one. It was a, I think it was just called like We Were About to Die. Okay. Um, and this was to be followed, this was actually followed by the trade collections of the series. And uh, feels uh, suspiciously like staking a claim. Oh, and yeah. uh, <laughs> Especially after letting the property lay dormant for you know over 20 years at this point. This is similar to the old She-Hulk gambit, I think we call that, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> you heard something's about to be produced, so you make sure you rush something to, to uh, mm-hmm, the print. Yeah. Now, uh, Peter Gillis wasn't pleased, and in fact, he hadn't been pleased since 2002-2003. Uh, now, upon hearing of the the sci-fi adaptation, he sent a letter to Marvel pointing out that he never signed a contract for Strike Force Moratori, and so Marvel did not own it. Or at the very least, he has a claim of ownership. Right. Now, this would gum up, gum up the works enough to halt the sci-fi deal. Marvel responded with what is referred to as a as an extremely lowball rights offer, and a letter suggesting that Peter sign or see nothing because the project's going to go forward anyway. Wow. Um, now, when Gillis declined the offer, Marvel turned around and decided that you know what, you actually did sign a contract. Hey. <laughs> and they would use uh, they would send him back a standard. Uh, this is all coming from his attorney. Uh, a standard correct character rights agreement as proof. And it was a, a bogus one at that. Wow. They're really, really rolling the <laughs> dice here, Marvel. Uh, Gillis, being a former Marvel freelancer, freelancer, had signed several of these for titles, such as Captain America and Doctor Strange. According to Gillis' legal representative, Connor Cochran, the Marvel proof was a copy of the signature page bearing Peter's John Hancock with the words, Strike Force Moratori penciled in on a new blank contract in the space where normally the created character name would be typed in. Allegedly, the typefaces were different on the pages, which made the entire attempt even more laughable. So the the sci-fi deal was dropped. It was eventually found that Peter and Marvel were co-owners of the property. Brent Anderson, artist and co-creator of Strike Force Moratori, was actually under contract with Marvel at the time of the series' conception, so that was considered an in-house kind of operation. Marvel still insisted they owned the whole thing, though. When Waterman Entertainment came a calling in 2011, they optioned the property from Gillis, and they were confident they could work something out regarding regarding the rights with Marvel. Uh, so, how did you like 
Strike Force Moratory feature film, Chris. You like that one? Oh, um, I'm, I'm having a hard time. Yeah, uh, you don't remember? You don't remember watching that? <laughs> yeah, the option lapsed, and that was that for now. Uh, mm-hmm. I, you know, personally speaking, I, whatever. I, you know, I, I don't know this would make a great movie. Uh, you I don't know, know, I think yeah. it, I think it works best as a series where you are drawn into the characters so that when they inevitably die, I mean, so I mean, so let's say we made a movie, Strike Force, Moratory, the movie. It was basically the first six issues, let's say, distilled into mm-hmm. it. And in that movie, two of the main characters would die, and then you'd be like, by the second one, you'd be like, well, that already happened in the same movie. You know, like exactly. you know, like, you're not really shocking me. It happened in the first movie to to boot. Uh, I think it has to be serialized in some Certainly. way, either as a TV show or, like I said, I think I think this is something. This is not to, to impugn comic books, folks, but in my heart of hearts, I believe not everything needs to be a comic book, and this yeah. could, this could have worked well as you know, well written series of of pulp novels. But, yeah, because I'm thinking of like uh, the the manga and the novel uh, Battle Royale, mm-hmm. where it's like you knew that you know for for folks who don't know it's a it's a group of kids on an island in a contest, last person standing basically. Uh-huh. So you know that by the end, uh, everyone except for you know a small handful will die. So and and it it's written in such a way where it uh, where it does you do feel every single death, and. Uh, it does have the asides, just like this one, where you do learn a bit about their past. You do learn why they're there. You know, you know how they got there, and you do feel something when they when they do ultimately pass. It doesn't feel like a "Hey, this already happened" type thing. How, but many, I, how many volumes is it roughly? If you can, don't it's know, 15, okay. 15 Okay, volumes. so yeah. yeah, so it's it really builds to these yeah, moments, to these you know. Yeah, you really and because and it's chunky manga volume, you really do get a lot of yeah. uh, character exposition Absolutely. and growth and stuff. So uh, yeah, I had a good time with this. Mm-hmm. I just want to give my quick uh, sure lesson on this. I don't have much, you know. Chris is going to tell you an awesome story about the how he got into this, but I vaguely remember this from when it came out in '86, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I remember the logo most of all. It's got a really striking logo. Uh, if you, if you see it, it'll be part of the uh, thumbnail for this episode, but you can find it online. The the logo for this. I don't. I didn't read it though. Uh, I I, I yeah. think I I think I opened it, flipped through it, and I probably I think I I just don't remember my thoughts about it. Maybe I was just turned off by the look of it. Maybe I didn't see Spider Man right away, and I was like, ah, whatever. But uh, I didn't read it. But Chris, who brought this to the table, has a great story about it. Yeah, because I probably first learned about this series through those Wizard uh, columns when when it was first optioned oh, by Sci-Fi. Okay. Because uh, you know, this is this is one of those that. You know how like there's like those brilliant but canceled type of things mm-hmm. where it's like always like something that you know Joss Whedon did or something. Of course, yeah, right. <laughs> but uh, Strike Force Moritori was always on those lists for like you know time lost gems that you need to check out. And uh, I probably saw one of those, and then I also saw the news of the optioning for sci-fi. But then I didn't really think about it because this is still early 2000s, so the back issue market was a little bit more robustly priced yeah. than it is. Uh, now, so <laughs> if I wanted to go collect all 31 issues, that was probably going to cost a couple hundred bucks. Wow! So uh, I didn't, <laughs> and uh, and I didn't buy it until about 2010. I had uh, uh, people who follow the blog, and I'm not sure if I mentioned it here, but I uh, I lost my my job in 20 in 2008, mm-hmm. uh, along with many other people. And uh, lost a lot of things, lost the house, almost lost the car, stuff like that. So it was a a rough time. And uh, from that point, 
uh, I, I could only find temporary work. So I was brought in as, you know, a transitional manager here. I was brought in as a, you know, a grunt who works with his hands here. Mm-hmm. So it was just always bebopping around. And I was on a particularly large project in 2010 where uh, we, there were about four or five thousand temporary people brought in for uh, under you know one roof for a tremendous project. Mm. And uh, I was brought in as a quality and logistics manager. And I remember the day I bought Strikeforce Moritori was was a Cinco de Mayo 2010 because mm-hmm. I forgot to take off my my jalapeno necklace. <laughs> When I went to the comic store, because <laughs> we were all wearing these jalapeno necklaces, uh, Cinco de Mayo was a big deal in in Arizona, yeah. um, and I was I was violently ill, so I went home early and uh, and I thought I was going to be sick on the way home, so I pulled off at a comic book store. Of course, that, yeah. and put you right back, yeah. <laughs> right, that that old pulp smell always uh, settles the stomach, but uh, I got in there and they had uh, they had the entire run of Strikeforce Moritori in a um, in wrapped in plastic. And it was marked at ten dollars, but it had a red sticker on it saying it was fifty percent off, so it was five dollars. Mm. So it got the whole entire thing, including the uh, electric undertow, for five bucks. So went home. I was sick the next couple of days, so I just spent the time reading this, and uh, and I was able to draw some parallels between the book and, and in a much lighter way, uh, what I was currently going through as a temporary employee. Uh, because when you take a temporary job, especially when it's one that you need to pay your bills, and yeah. it's kind of like being injected with that moratorium. Uh, yeah, well, you, you uh, knew that you were, you know, going to be on the chopping we block eventually. We were about to be fired. Right. <laughs> yes. And uh, it was just insane that, uh, that the I was reading this at the same time that. People were just like disappearing. Wow. You know, it's like we would have at one table there'd be eight people, and the next day there'd be seven people because one was moritoried out. Wow. You know, it was uh, very strange that uh, the timing. It was just very, very cool. Life to, imitates to, art, imitates life. But did you yes. get to design your own costumes? Yes, it was great. <laughs> that would that makes it all worth it. I put the bell bottoms on my cuffs <laughs> and wore my tidy whities Oh boy, uh, that's awesome. Just so weird, yeah. It, it really, it really must happen at a perfect time for you to make it really uh, come to life. I, I also, I also want to say that this is the kind of thing these series like this that are out of normal Marvel or DC continuity. They're just sort of <laughs> comic book stories. You don't see them anymore. And no. you used to see him more, you know, like uh, Peter, so he, he's talking about how he was pitching it around and Marvel picked it up because why not? That's a publisher. Nowadays, sure. I, don't think, I don't think it even pitches a story like this to DC or Marvel because it doesn't contain any of their core any characters, you know? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's a great story. And uh, <laughs> I'm sure it made it much more vivid for you. It did. And it'll always remind me of... of uh... Oh, we, because I, I, towards the end, I was part of the moratory process. So I was, uh, so I, it, they called it RIF, reduction in force. So any, anybody who's worked any time in temps or on contracts, they know what RIF is. Yeah. And, uh, and I would be the one who'd be like, okay, this one's got to go today. And it was, uh, it was, uh, brutal. Yeah. <laughs> Did you have to fire yourself at the very end? You had to like you were the last. I had man to sign standing. my I, I had to sign my own uh, release papers. Yeah. 
as as, as my own supervisor. Yeah. It was very uh, very meta, man. And then you yelled at yourself, and then that was it. You go to hell, you know. <laughs> yes, and, I, and then I kicked the hole in the wall and got sucked out. You can't fire me. I quit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> then, then you almost blew up the whole place. <laughs> well, that is cool. Uh, you know, I don't I don't have the same connection to it, but I think I'm gonna. Think about that, and you know, as I continue to read the series, that this is sort of how a lot of us are, even in our regular jobs. It doesn't mean that yeah. we are safe. We can be fired anytime, folks, and uh, that's that would true. Be, that's too bad. But we do have something else to close out the show. We do. We've been very, very bad about listener mail. Yeah, it's <laughs> so... been over a month since we even dealt with it. Yeah, we're about to talk about the 4th of July, so let's uh, get into, <laughs> into Maddie D's uh, letter from uh, July 6th. It says, hey guys, happy belated 4th of July. Happy 4th of July, Maddie. Uh, I just finished your episode on Savage Dragon issue one. Great work. I really enjoyed it. Like Chris, I've been a Savage Dragon fan from the start of Image Comics. I say it's a great it's great to walk down memory lane with your well-acted and described telling of issue one. I didn't know that Frank Darling's wife had a bit of a New York accent. Oh, yeah. Yeah, not many people knew that. <laughs> Uh, no, honestly, it was great. Savage Dragon is a fun book to read, and I've always felt that the book has been more for mature readers. Of course, lately, it seems Eric is really pushing the envelope. I mean, what has come over him? It means yes, Eric Larson, is... obviously. Larson, uh, yes, yeah. of course. <laughs> I, I, yes, the book is a little tongue-in-cheek with some of the visuals, but if he makes it any more graphic, he will have to get published <laughs> by Boundless Comics, and uh, it is... I've Pretty heard. Graphic. I know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, sure. Some of the nudity has been well, it's been hidden by well-placed dialogue balloons and out-of-frame body parts. But wow, the stories have got some serious adult themes. It certainly is entertaining, and the dirty old man in me really wants to keep him <laughs> keep it up. Of course, I'll have to wait until my kids are in bed to read an issue. LOL. Uh, well, that's all my thoughts for now. Would love to hear you guys hear some more talk about my fin addiction, but I have to get back to work. Please keep up the great work, and I'm looking forward to the next trip on the Cosmic Treadmill. Well, and you're always you. welcome of to course. come along with us. Thank you very much, Matty D. Yeah, I haven't read any recent Savage Dragon, but I see that comment all the time. Uh, it, it is, and uh, the Savage Dragon is now uh, Malcolm Dragon. It's the original dragon's son, and yeah. uh, his wife uh, is uh, she like wears like a Catholic schoolgirl uniform, <laughs> and uh, she's she's Asian, and she's drawn to be. Uh, she's supposed to be like you know eighteen, nineteen, but if you look at it at a glance, yeah, might think no. she's a little younger than that. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, uh, I mean. I'll say this, it's his, it's Eric Larson's it's series, his baby, yeah. top to bottom, you know, uh, whatever, it's it's like Dave Sims' Cerebus, you can not like it, but you can, definitely can't say it's being you held can't hold it against him, by yeah. forces outside of him, you know, this is what he wants to do, so uh, it's awesome to see that it's so many, and I, I had a lot of fun with that episode too, and, and like, yep. with all these image launches, like we've talked about, that's where I... Turned around and walked away. I never, I never really read. It. I remember I looked at Spawn number one, and I, it was interesting. And someone, someone I knew had it, but uh, I never looked at him. And to go back, I'm like, hey, you know, I really was being a teenager at the time about it. It's not, you know, these aren't the greatest comics, but they're not the worst by any means. And definitely as yeah. a historical capsule, they're uh, great to look at. So absolutely, we, we have one more to do, right, Chris? We still have we this do. Spawn we number spawn. one. So mm -hmm. if we do that, we'll have the whole launch. Done away. Uh, next one comes from Jeremiah Jones Goldstein from August 4th. Says, Reggie, Chris, I just finished episode 44, Gen 13, issue 13. That was another quality episode and pretty funny. I did enjoy the reading of comments at the end of the episode. I also very much enjoyed Chris's story about walking away from comics. 
but I think it is really great when you both interject some personal stuff in the subject matter. I do agree, though, you don't want to spend 20 minutes every episode reading comments, and we don't. Uh, <laughs> finally, I cannot believe that you did not mention one of the biggest recent variant cover gimmick money grabs to come down the pike recently. I'm referring to the DC Harley Quinn Little Black Book polybagged variants. It was across... I totally forgot about Me those. Me too. Because... <laughs> uh, I, I, I don't know why. I don't think I... Well, you know, let me just finish and we'll talk sure, about it. Sure, sure. Uh, it was across ten different series, each issue polybagged with a heavy black bag that was not see-through. Inside the polybag was a variant cover done by some top artists, Alex Ross, Tim Sale, Darwin Cook, Jim Lee, etc. The thing that got me was that inside the bag, the cover was a random of one of three possible covers, a sketch cover, the same image after being inked, and finally a full-color version, so there were actually 30 different covers, <laughs> all of which you received randomly. You, couldn't, you didn't know what you got in the bag. No. With, with DC doing variant themes every month, I was getting the ones I liked. The movie poster ones was a favorite, and I remember that was a cool one. Yes. Uh, when, the, when these were announced, I was excited by the artist list. I did not know ahead of time what was coming. When I bought these, I was actually happy at first. It was only 10 variants instead of the 22 to 24 they were doing most months. The artist list was top-notch. Now, mind you, I am enough of a sucker to buy two copies of the polybag so I can keep one in the bag and open one. I was flabbergasted to find the, uh, the nature of the variants when I opened the bags. I know that if people keep buying the variants, then they're going to keep making them. So I wasn't particularly upset, but it was just a shock. Thank you for taking the time to read my rant. Keep up the great work. I'll be listening. Have a great weekend, Jeremiah. P.S. I didn't open the second polybag copy to see if I got a different cover. I'm not that crazy. So good man, I, I, good man. <laughs> yeah, I know. You, <laughs> you know, gotta they, keep one in the bag. You gotta stick. You gotta <laughs> stick to your guns. That, you know, that, <laughs> that could be the uh, Jim Lee original. But you know, I, you know, I, as you know, uh, I review Harley Quinn for the Weird Science site, so I actually do you read. Do? Yeah, I do. Oh yeah, and uh, <laughs> I, I read this one. But I'll tell you, I don't think I understood the full brunt of this variant thing until Jeremiah just described it. That's Broke why. Down, I, yeah. I, I knew it happened. I knew they had a polybag thing and that some of them had original art in them, like, I don't know, 10 out of a whole run or some crazy nonsense like that. And um, But I didn't realize that it was like not only variants, but each variant had a sketch. Different a, levels I mean, of variation. <laughs> that, that really is just silly stuff. Uh, I don't understand how that benefited anybody except for... DC Comics, obviously. Sure. Yeah, there you go. So, uh, yeah, that's. Uh, I'm glad. Thanks for that information, Jeremiah. That was cool to hear about a really obscene. I wonder if there was an ordering thing. Did it had to have been right? I w I don't know. I mean, I I know DC has been better about that than Marvel of late, but I couldn't say for sure that they didn't inflate. I mean, maybe, maybe they maybe they didn't inflate on the on the basis that you don't know what you're getting anyway. You don't know. Yeah, you know, a, you, a whole you know a whole state might not get a sketch. Exactly. Yeah. You know. Or you might get like three. You all know, of them. All of them. <laughs> so it's uh it was kind of a crazy thing. Luckily, or maybe unluckily for some, that series is canceled, so don't worry about there it. There you go. There you go. <laughs> no, I didn't realize it was that that uh, yeah. out there either until he broke it down for us. I thought it was just a, you know, you, you could either buy the regular cover or you could buy the bagged one, and the bagged one was different. Was that, one of, I thought it was like one of like three or four covers in one there. Of, yeah, but not the whole. Turned out to be like one of 12 steps. or 20 covers. Like Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now we're also going to read one from uh, Cliff Berg, who answers a question for us. He wrote in on August 9th, 
says, hi, guys, enjoying the podcast. I've been enjoying episode 22. This is Weird Comics History, the catalog of the DC pre-crisis multiverse. I always appreciate a good Infinite Earths geek out, even the silly stuff from early DC Silver Age. Anyway, I got to the part where you were discussing Earth 300.6, the one where Superboy's parents die and Superboy vows to never leave Earth or, or visit the, uh, Legion, the, the 30th century again. You guys seem perplexed at the oddball numbering of 0.6. And here comes the explanation. He goes, mm-hmm. I think the explanation for that lies in the fact that this story was one of six alternate realities featured in Legion of Superheroes number 300. Uh, I think that's probably dead on. Yeah. Uh, if I recall correctly, that story was an exercise issue where Brainiac 5, along with Ron Vidar, or Vidar, and some insect-looking scientist, whose name escapes me, from the Time Institute, attempt to treat Douglas Nolan, the twin brother of then-deceased Lad. Douglas is tortured by visions of alternate realities, of which 300.6 is one. Uh, the issue is a celebration of Legion of Superheroes history, and up to that point, before it got ridiculous, and each vision is, each vision is illustrated by an artist associated with whichever Legion era said vision featured nice. I find, yeah that's a great explanation and I'm sure that's definitely it yep uh, he continues to say I find it a little odd that 300.6 is numbered as such because I believe it's the first vision featured in the issue but whatever sure <laughs> presumably the other alternate realities are featured somewhere as earth 300.1 300.2 etc I hope that helps if you guys address that elsewhere in the podcast and I miss it I apologize no you didn't nope. <laughs> that's all new information to us yep uh, Thanks for the hard work. It's been entertaining and enjoyable. Cliff, a longtime comic nerd. Well, that's that's awesome. Uh, yeah, like I like you say, I think that's got to be it as well. It's uh, for what, sure. What other explanation could there be? And definitely, we're not so Legion savvy that we would know that off the bat or even at all. No, I've got that issue, but with Legion and me, it's baby steps. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I, I keep threatening that one day we're going to be delving into some Legion, but we have not gotten to it yet. But uh, thank you very much for that, Cliff. That was, uh, yes, we sir. love to get a little uh, information. And finally, we're going to wrap up this segment with a letter from Chris Bailey. That's uh, at Charlton Hero. This came on August 12th. He said, guys, just wanted to pass along some positivity your way. I've been listening to the treadmill lately and surfing through the archives and truly enjoy what I'm hearing. Just finished up the Image Trilogy and enjoyed your coverage tremendously. Busted a gut laughing at the voice acting as you narrate your way through the books in hilarious fashion. Thanks for what you guys do. This is one guy who appreciates it. Thanks. Chris, a.k.a. at Charlton Hero on Twitter. And thanks very much, Chris. He's a great friend to both of us and uh, of everything that we've done. And uh, we didn't pay him any money for this, I don't think, right? So <laughs> no, no, I don't think so. That, that was pretty good. Uh, you, he, he also writes about comics, and he's a mm-hmm. tremendous comics enthusiast. Uh, I, would, I was going to say, especially for Bronze Age, but no, I think it runs the gamut. Yeah. I, oddly, I don't see a lot of Charlton stuff for a guy named Charlton Hero. <laughs> yeah. uh, sometimes, but it's, it's a lot of DC, Marvel, stuff like that. Everything Pacific, you name it. Uh, but you can read his stuff at charltonhero.wordpress.com. And you can write to us if you want to uh, be featured on one of our sporadic uh, <laughs> mailbags or whatever. 2018. We do respond to mail also, uh, you know, sometimes. So We do. We, we could do. get a little conversation going. Uh, write to us either about Strike Force uh, Moratory or about the fellows here or whatever you like at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash history. We're on Twitter at Cosmic T-Mill, and I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. And I'm at Ace Comics. 
We have weekly writings at weirdsciencedccomics.com where I do review all the Harley Quinn books. Yes. And daily writings by Chris at chrisoninfiniteearth.com where he just posted recently his 600th consecutive review. 600 days. I mean, that is that is worth some applause. You know, I'm, I'm not gonna <laughs> edit it. I'm not gonna edit in applause, but I'll clap. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's incredible. I'll, I'll join in. I mean, that is really that is really incredible, Chris. That's a, that's almost <laughs> you. you know what is that now? So that's uh, like almost two full years of uh, yeah in January. You're closing in on that in January, yeah. so that's amazing, and uh, it's so entertaining. I, I really think more and more people uh, glom onto it as it goes along. It's been growing. Now it's, that I've, you've been, done, I've been surprised. Now that you've done so many books too, it's the kind of resource where. I don't know if you could go in there and, and find a review. Actually, I know for a fact you can't go in there and find a review for nope. any given issue. But I bet if you do a look for a character, at this point oh, yeah. you've covered a, a broad aspect, a, a different eras too. I mean, you do a DC book from any time. Yep. So there's some Bronze Age, there's some 70s, 80s, 90s, and into the 2000s and 2010s, and a little bit of 60s. Right, some sixties and a, and a little. Uh, I'm very very few, but into the fifties as well. A dab of fifties. Uh, part yeah. of your thing is you you have to you want to have the comic. Yeah, that those are my my reviewer rules. Is I have to physically own a physical edition. So yeah. it's a with the issue with a post number six hundred. I was able to actually do the first ever Batman story because I do have it uh, reprinted uh, in, in a Detective reprint. Comics six twenty seven. I was gonna so. say I was like I I, I I won't expect anything from Action Comics number one on that, but maybe we will get it unless it's part of a yeah. Uh, right. And it's it's only single issues. I do. I don't do trades or nothing. But I do. Would you do Treasury yeah. editions? Uh, yeah, I, I did a Treasury edition for uh, post number one hundred. I did right. uh, Superman versus Spider Man. Yeah. Oh, so there you go. So uh, mm-hmm. you, we gotta check it out. It's up, obviously, like I say, every single day. So you can't miss it. You gotta point your browsers over to chrisoninfiniteearths dot com. <laughs> And uh, we also have that half-hearted blog slash image depository. Uh, that's at weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com. Hasn't been updated in quite a while, but it currently still features pictorial evidence of every, to our knowledge, pre-crisis appearance of the enigmatic monitor. Yeah, that might be I might be dumping some more things in there uh, coming up, maybe referring Beautiful. to specific episodes. Yeah, I can't think of anything for this one, though. Sorry, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we can throw the covers up there or something, but... Uh... <laughs> I think that's all we got from this week, Chris. You got mm-hmm. anything else for him? No, that'll do it. Well, until next week, folks, I want you to keep it on the treadmill moratorially. We're all gonna die. What if there's nothing? We'll all have to face this alone. There's a wind on it inside everybody. More thoughts like these can make you feel so alone. You're gonna die, you're gonna die, you're gonna die alone. You're gonna die, you're gonna die, you're gonna die alone All alone What if I don't become famous posthumously? Maybe my story's no good If I can take one possession, it'll have to be my duty When oblivion comes calling, it'll be so cold you're gonna die, you're gonna die, you're gonna die alone. You're gonna die, you're gonna die.